comes from Haggai 2, um, verses 10 through 14, which is page 791 if you're following a pew Bible. month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with, these, with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, for stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you in all the products of your toil, with blight, with mildew, and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the temple, Lord's temple was laid, consider, is seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the, owl, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the history it teaches us. We thank you for the wisdom it teaches us. We thank you what it reveals to us about you and about your son and about your spirit. We thank you for the law, knowing that the psalmist over and over again declares that he loves the law, and I pray that you would lead us to love the law as well. We rejoice that we have a word from you pray that you would open our eyes to the scriptures that are here. That we might have wisdom. That we might store them up. That we might delight in who you are and how you've revealed yourself to us. pray that they would give us wisdom and understanding and courage and boldness to declare the good news of Jesus to others. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this week I received a text message. Power went out. Cool. All right. Well, um, this week I received a text message from a friend asking if I had seen the outrage concerning an ad that was uh, portrayed or played at the Super Bowl. So that's, if you've watched the Super Bowl or if you've been on the internet, you may have heard of this ad. It 
um, from his former company called He Gets Us, or a nonprofit. And so the, the ad itself is an interesting series of pictures that were likely all developed by artificial intelligence, which for me is already a bad start. Um, and it's a series of people in various different settings having their feet washed by somebody else. And as the ad goes through, it's kind of clear to see what they were getting at. Um, because the people whose feet are being washed are a bit, to put it plainly, it's clear these people are not conservative. And so they're, they're starting off with something. There's an agenda. Um, and so the people that are there are illegal immigrants. There are people at a riot. There's a woman at an abortion clinic. There's a woman, um, presumably a Muslim, and she's wearing a hijab. There's a man who's dressed um, effeminately. Let the hearer understand. Um, and then the ad ends with Jesus didn't teach hate, he washed feet. There's good and bad. I'm not going to spend the entire time dissecting the ad, but the friend texted me and said, have you seen this outrage? My immediate response was yes, I am part of the outrage. Um, because there's a lot that is not great in the ad, and if you go to their website, there's a lot that's bad there too. Um, but... And part of the issue is, so their, their main thing is that Jesus washed feet. Which, yes, Jesus did wash feet. In John 13, we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet. But that's the only text in the Gospels where Jesus washes feet. So Jesus' ministry is not described by washing feet. But though, he did wash feet. And yet there's something that's being demonstrated by washing feet there. Jesus washes his feet and then tells us, sorry, he washes his disciples' feet and then tells them, as I have washed your feet, so wash others' feet. Great. It's, it's a model of Jesus' humility, and it's a model of Jesus' servant heart. It's, it's a wonderful picture, and it's a wonderful narrative for us, and it's a very powerful text, because we see Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Savior, moments before he's going to take on the cross to um, begin his salvific work of dying for the sins of his people, serving his disciples by washing their feet. It's incredible. But yet, I think the ad might misunderstand foot washing. Because if you notice, the people that are in the text who Jesus washes their feet, they're his disciples. They're not just random people that are clearly there for some sort of political message. And the only people Jesus does this for is, are his disciples. He then tells them to go and do likewise. So he tells his disciples, go and serve others. And yet, I think the ad might be giving the wrong impression of what the foot washing means, because it's just assorted people washing the feet of people who are demonstrating... I'm trying to be cautious, because I don't want to say more than the ad is saying, but it appears that the feet washing is being done to people who are in sin. And thus, it seems to likely be suggesting that something about this foot washing is more than what the foot washing actually is. And the question then becomes, what does the foot washing do? Is the foot washing transferring holiness? Because if that's what the suggestion is, then that's in 
That's inaccurate and unbiblical. Is the foot washing just of serving people and caring for people? Is it, I mean, if, if they're trying to convey the woman outside the abortion clinic whose feet are being washed, is this woman is serving her and leading her away from that clinic to leading her into a church setting and to leading her to hearing the good news of Jesus, then great, I'm behind that. But based upon what's on their website, I'm a little concerned that that's not what they're trying to say. But all of that to say is, again, the question, what does the foot washing do? And that's quite similar to what the text is here. As Haggai brings up two issues of the law and says, what does this do? What does this communicate? And the idea being, how is holiness transferred? How is righteousness transferred and uncleanness? And so as we look at the text, um, this morning we'll come to what is probably the most easy to apply the sections of Haggai. And yet it's still a very interesting section, and it's in my notes I have that it's rather spicy, but I worry that that doesn't make a clear statement of what I'm trying to say. Um, it's a little controversial. As they're going to read it, it's going to be a bit like, oh, this is nice, but also, ouch. It, it's a it's a bit of an insulting text, really. Um, they made progress on the temple, and you might expect to have hear them, a good job. You built the temple, wonderful, great. But it's not quite there. Um, they get a warning, and they get a bit of an insult. Um, Haggai, through the Lord, um, says a few things that might lead the people to take offense. But yet, it's a wonderful statement of who they are. In the intro of this text, we get yet another time marker. We see on the 24th day of the ninth month. And this one, of the dates we've been given, has the least significance in terms of the calendar. So the first date we get is uh, the first day of the month, which is a feast. The next date we get is at the end of the Feast of Booths. And then this one is just a date. But it does have significance. And interestingly, it's the date that's mentioned the most in Haggai. It's mentioned twice in the text we read this morning. And then the final word that's given in Haggai that we'll get to next week is mentioned again. So this date, even though it's the least significant in terms of the Jewish calendar, is mentioned three times. It's mentioned the most. And yet it gives us a time marker for how long the whole book takes place. It arrives three months and 23 days after the first word that's spoken in chapter 1. And two months after, two months and three days after the second date that's given, the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. And thus, we see that this entire prophetic book takes place over a relatively short period of time, of just under four months. And so in the second to last word from the Lord, Haggai asks two questions. And then following this, these two questions, he then asks them to think. So two questions, so question, answer, question, answer, and then a response or a follow-up or a teaching from those questions that are asked. And so in this first question, the Lord calls or tells Haggai to call out the priests and to ask them a legal question. And so in question one, we have, if someone carries holy meat and the fold of his garment and touches with his fold, Bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said no. And so the question is, 
If holy meat is placed inside the garment and something touches that garment, does the garment make that other thing that touches it holy? And so before we get that for a moment, I want to jump to the Old Testament background for this. So when we look at Leviticus 6, 27, this is specifically what Haggai is referring to here. Whatever touches its flesh, referring to holy meat, shall be holy. When any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. So, in Leviticus, we see that that which touches the meat is now holy. But, that's not Haggai's question. Haggai's question is, what of the thing the meat touches? If something touches that garment, does that holiness transfer? The, the priest answer, no, it doesn't. And so, to recap that, so when the holy meat is placed inside the garment, that garment becomes holy. But the holiness of that garment does not transfer from meat to garment to oil or food or grain or whatever the garment touches. The holiness of the meat transfers to the garment. <coughs> the holiness of the meat doesn't transfer from the garment to something else. And so it might seem a little odd, but to give a worldly example of how we transfer cleanliness, when we wash our hands, the soap makes our hands clean. But the soap that just washed our hands doesn't make our dirty child or grandchild's hands clean. And given how obsessive my wife can be about hand washing, I've seen this quite a, lot, a bit lately. Uh, remember, she's a medical professional, so of course it's always wash your hands, wash your hands. But we know that when you know, I wash my hands, my clean hands don't make my son's hands clean. <coughs> Holiness is not transferred in a tertiary manner. It's not transferred from one thing to the next thing to a third thing. So touching holy things that are made holy by touching something else do not make them holy. I know that was a really confusing sentence. But in a sense, in a very easy way that we joke to, someone does not become holy merely from attending church. Holiness does not come merely from hanging out with other holy people. Holiness is not transferred that way. But, as we see in question two, sin is. So Haggai's next question in um, 2.13, or the Lord's next question through Haggai, is if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. So this question then is, if someone goes and they touch a dead body and they become unclean, does the person they touch or thing they touch become unclean? So the uncleanness of the dead body goes to that person who's touched the, un the unclean body or the dead body. If they touch something, does that become unclean? So the same sort of question, really, but uncleanness <laughs> rather than holiness. And then the priests say it does become unclean. And this actually draws us back to Numbers 31, verse 19 which is in Israel bringing vengeance on Midian, which we discussed in Sunday school a few weeks back. This is after the Midianites and the Moabites in Numbers 25 um, deceive, with Balaam's help, they infiltrate the people of Israel and they seek to seemingly destroy them by leading into adultery and idolatry. And that leads to a plague. But in that text, in Numbers 25, the Lord says, I will have vengeance on these people. And then a few chapters pass, and in chapter 31, the Lord then leads them to 
um, have a, a battle against these people, which leads to a lot of people dying. And then in Numbers 31, 19, the Lord gives an instruction following this uh, conquest. You camp outside the, outside the camp seven days. Whoever of you has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. So here in Numbers 31, we see these people are given a specific requirement for cleanliness following their war and their battle and um, the death of other people. So one thing, and this is an aside, but I really hope that throughout Haggai and even throughout, for those who have been in um, Sunday school, that we can see and that uh, you're able to see how well connected the Bible is. That even in Haggai, in these 38 um, verses, I hope that it's very well demonstrated that the Old Testament is not just an assorted random 66 books thrown together, sorry, the Bible is not just 66 books thrown together, but rather they're all building on one another to show a grand epic that is telling one grand story of God's interaction with a sinful world and his work to redeem it and to glorify himself through his son and to glorify his son through his work of redemption. And so one thing that I hope that I can help each of you to see better with however much time the Lord blesses us together um, here on this earth uh, is how interconnected the scriptures are and how they all point us to Christ. But to return to the point, so Haggai is asking them, when a person who has come into contact with a dead body touches something else, is it the same as the garment and the holy meat, or is it different? And the priests answer, and they say that it's different. And if we look to Numbers 19.22, we see exactly why it's different. And whatever... The unclean person touches shall be unclean. And anyone who touches it shall be unclean until evening. So a garment that becomes holy from touching holy meat does not make other things holy. But someone who becomes unclean by touching a dead body does spread their uncleanness. Now, before I go on, I want to unpack ceremonial uncleanness a little bit because it is a little confusing. Unclean in the Old Testament is not necessarily sinful. Sin is unclean, and sin does make someone unclean, but there are instances in which someone becomes unclean and they did not sin. So touching a dead body is not sinful. And there are other issues um, that come up as well. As you look at them, and if you think uncleanness and sin are synonymous, it's going to be really confusing. But generally speaking, uncleanness happens in a lot of instances because there's a reminder of the curse or the fall, or there's a reminder of death, of things that should not be, things that are unholy. And so this uncleanness, rather than it being thought of as being a uh, correlation to sinful, it should be more appropriately thought of as it is not appropriate for them to make sacrifice. It is not appropriate for them to be among others in the camp. And it's a period of time which way they should withdraw from the camp to be made holy once again. And so in comparing these two questions from Haggai, we can conclude that holiness does not transfer in the same way that uncleanness transfers. Or it's much easier to become unclean than it is to become holy. And yet this is a relatively simple concept for us. Um, if we think about the way we live our lives, 
when we do laundry, we don't put our clean clothes on top of our dirty clothes thinking that it's going to make our dirty clothes clean. But rather, we understand that if we put our clean clothes on top of our dirty clothes, if we leave them there, we now have a bigger basket of dirty clothes. <coughs> our dirt transfers, our cleanness does not. And though I just said that cleanness or uncleanness does not necessarily mean sin, I think we can also safely conclude that holiness does not transfer in the same way that sin transfers. And yet we see this, you know, pretty clearly in 1 Corinthians 15.33 where Paul writes, Do not be deceived, deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Surrounding yourself with immoral people will make you immoral. Bad company ruins good morals. Being next to or around holy things does not necessarily make you holy. Being next to unclean or sinful things does often make you unclean and or sinful. So in response to Haggai's two questions, we have to ask ourselves a question. What does this have to do with the rest of Haggai? Or what does this have to do with the building of the temple? And that's the key. If we remember everything before this, was about the building of the temple. Why are these questions here? And that's because having the temple does not necessarily make them clean. Does not necessarily make them holy. And even to extend even beyond that further into the context of where they are, being in this land does not necessarily make them holy or make them clean. But their uncleanness will still spread. It is necessary that they repent. And the teaching does not end here, though. There's following these questions and answers, there's God then in verse 14 applying it specifically to them with, a, with an indictment. If we look at verse 14, we read... <coughs> that the Lord declares that these people are unclean, and everything they offer is unclean. Let me read that. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with these people, referring back to the uncleanness, that they become unclean, like the person in contact with a dead body. And with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. This is where I said that it should be a bit of an insult to us. We should, they, or not to us, to the well, yeah, to us, we'll get there though. To them, where they would read this and go, oh, just because we have this temple doesn't make us clean or holy. We're not by default. Our natural state is not cleanness or holiness or righteousness. Everything they offer is unclean. And then following this in verse, four, in verse 15, the Lord instructs them to consider something. This language is repeated in 15 as well as in 18. That now then, consider from this day onward. And it's interesting, you may have a note in your, um, your footnotes that says, or backward. There's a bit of a conflict in how to understand this word, and I think it's appropriate that we reconcile both there. Um, it's seemingly the case that it's not so much think of this forward, but also think of the backwards. It's a little bit of both. As the phrase literally means to set your hearts 
or one way as I was looking through it this week, the ESV Study Bible helpfully explains it as there to keep an eye on past experience while looking forward to the new thing that God is presently doing. So as they look forward to what's going on, they also are reminded of the past. They're keeping in mind of what's going on, but also what has happened. So to consider, remember the past as you look forward to what's happening in the future or in the present. And so the idea is they would look forward to something and yet have this mindset in the future and be reminded of what happened in the past. From this day onward, understand that you, while you were in sin and refusing to build the temple, you were cursed, is what the Lord's telling them in verse 15. But now that you have repented and have been obedient, you will be blessed what the Lord is saying in verse 18. And yet, it's an important message for us in Christ as well. To be reminded of what God has redeemed you from as you see his sanctifying work in your life. And Paul presses on a very similar idea in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, as he lists an assortment of all sorts of sins and says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Then he lists sins. And then he ends that with, and such were some of you. He reminds his audience of the sins they were guilty of, reminding them that they were unrighteous, reminding them that they were wicked, just like the sins of the world are seen around them. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Though our sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus, Paul calls them to remember their sins, to remember the mercy and the goodness and the grace of God. God might be glorified. And as a further reminder to repent of those sins and to continue to stay away from unrighteousness. To return to Haggai, though, it is more than just to a request to reflect. But there's also a specific aspect given. Before the stones were stacked upon each other, Consider this. Look back to what happened at the beginning of this letter. Or the beginning of the time before you came back in Ezra. How did you fare? How were things going for you before the temple was built? How were things going for you before the temple foundation was laid? And this brings us back to Haggai 1, 9 through 11. Consider how things were for you before the temple was built. They looked to collect food. If you flip back to 9 through 11, they never had enough. They gathered the harvest, but they didn't have enough to get them through the next harvest. They gathered, and they were never satisfied. They put money in their purses, but it seemed as if there was a hole in it. It continued to fall out. They never had enough. They went to draw wine, and they were never full. And the Lord then tells us here in uh, Haggai 2.17 that he intentionally thwarted them from having enough so that they would repent. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. God intentionally prevented them from having enough so they would look to him to provide. And yet that sobering thing that's read there is that the Lord does this so he, they would turn to him, and yet they did not. 
And yet for us, in our own lives, when we're struggling to make ends meet, when we are in misery and sorrow and hardship, do we turn to the Lord or do we turn to ourselves? Do we just keep on going and keep our head down or do we turn to the Lord and cry out for help? And yet again, we see the Lord mentioning that he has opposed his people. And I mentioned this when we look back at chapter 1, but I think it's worth asking again. Is your theology big enough for God to not only give you good things? God is not a genie who gives you whatever you pray for. Is your belief in God big enough that he can strike you with the products of your toil, with blight and with mildew and with hail, so that you might repent and seek him. Or that others might repent and seek him. Ultimately, God is more concerned with his glory and your rightfully glorifying him than he is your prosperity. God is indeed the giver of all good gifts, but we must be reminded that for a believer... Whatever leads us to be conformed more to the image of Christ is a greater gift than whatever is on the top of your Christmas list. Whatever leads you to being more like Christ is always a better gift for you, even if it's hard, than your financial or physical prosperity. So even though there are all sorts of preachers out there to tell you that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, God primarily wants you to be more conformed to the image of his son than he wants you to have whatever car, whatever possession, whatever computer, guitar, enter whatever it is you want. It is more beneficial for you to look more like Jesus. Yet God, in his mercy, still cared for this people. The greatest gift that the Lord gives his people is his presence. His presence in the temple, his presence in his son, who took on human flesh and dwelt among his people, who lived a life of perfect obedience and took on a cross, that they might be forgiven of their sins and redeemed. His presence in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for those who've been made alive in Christ, those who joyfully proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then in verse 9, excuse me, verse 19, we see that God does not bless them because of their exceeding holiness or their remarkable obedience. He just says in verse 15, so it is with these people, they are unclean. And then in verse 19, he says that he's going to bless them, but rather God blesses them because he is God. And presumably they've repented. I mean, they've rebuilt this temple. He calls them to look back before they've built the temple when they had been sent back specifically to rebuild this temple and that they failed to do it. And the actions we see from, you know, 1-1 one, one through up to this point, they've begun to rebuild the temple. This temple lighting ruins while they had their paneled houses, but now here... They've begun rebuilding. And so the Lord says, you've been obedient. You've repented of your concern for only yourself through rebuilding this temple to focus not just on your homes, but on your worship. And now the Lord says, up until this point, there's not been seed yet in the barn. 
There's no the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have still not yielded anything. But then the Lord says, He will bless them. Which again that draws us back to verse chapter one, where the Lord says, Look around you. You never have enough. Your harvest isn't producing. Why do you think that is? And up until this point, it was still the case. And it's because God was more concerned with their worship and his glory than he was with them having an abundant grain. So he still withheld the blessing up until this point in the text. But rather here, he waits until he tells them this. And he tells them he's going to do it, and then he blesses them. He makes it clear they're not a people who deserve this blessing. He tells them that what they offer is unclean, but then he tells them that he will bless them. And he's still seeking for their repentance and continued repentance. The goal is still that they would forsake their sin and delight in the Lord. That they would fear God and keep his commandments. But God is going to bless these people in response to their rebuilding of the temple. But looking back at this text as a whole, there's a few ways that we can apply the first part of it. And looking back to how holiness and uncleanness are transferred, holiness does not come merely from being in church. Holiness does not come merely from talking to other Christians. Touching a garment that is touched by holy meat does not make you holy. To over-apply this, Christian, you are not holy meat. You are a garment. In another sense, my wife does not become more holy by being married to me. The Lord may grow her in her patience, most likely. He may grow her in her sanctification by being married to me. I, I hope so. But merely being married to me, a pastor, does not make her a Christian. The same for my children. While I'm laboring to teach my children and my family the faith, um, Haddon and Emma are not saved merely by being pastor's kids. Coming to church does not make you a Christian. I mean, I've heard it said that, you know, going to church does not make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you into a car. Having Christian friends does not make you a believer in Jesus. Believing in Jesus... And being close to Jesus makes you a Christian. Confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and repenting of your sins. Being filled with the Holy Spirit. Being made alive in Christ is what makes a person a Christian. When the Holy Spirit regenerates a person, makes them alive, raises them up out of their spiritual deadness, and puts the Spirit in them, granting them the gift of faith, and repentance and regeneration. That is what defines a Christian. And it's those who call upon the name of the Lord are saved. So Christians, consider how you interact with unbelievers. When we consider how we impact people, we should not think of ourselves as holy meat, but rather the garments. Christians have been made holy by Jesus and by his Holy Spirit. Your righteousness does not rub off on other people. Your moralism might. I mean, people might become better moral people by interacting with you. 
But that doesn't mean that they are regenerate. It does not mean that they are new people in Christ. Holiness does not rub off in that way. But an unclean person might make other people unclean. A sinful person might make other people holy. Or sorry, might make other people sinful. Excuse me. Jumping the next point in my head. The only way an unclean person becomes holy is by being near Christ. You have been made holy by your connection to Christ. And others are made holy by their connection to Christ, not their connection to you. Christian fellowship may lead you to become more like Christ. It may aid you in sanctification. It may lead you to desire to read the scriptures more, and those are great things. It may encourage you for better church attendance. It may encourage you to engage in your church and to pursue church membership, but Christian fellowship does not necessarily make you more holy. Likely does not. What makes you holy is your connection to Christ. And your having been born again through Jesus. And sometimes we may have to take baby steps with evangelism. Sometimes when we're sharing the gospel with somebody, we have to start off slow. But we cannot settle for thinking that if we only get to baby steps with somebody, that we have successfully evangelized them and saved. We cannot settle for thinking that people will learn of Jesus simply by osmosis from being around us. If you are seeking to tell someone about Jesus, but you never actually mention Jesus, that's not evangelism. That's just being somebody's friend. And I think of this. I have a friend that when I lived in a different state, I... Uh, he began coming to church with, with me, and um, for a long time I thought to myself, I'm glad he's coming to church, but this, this isn't necessarily evangelism. He's just attending church, and it seemed like he was there because I was there, and he just wanted to spend more time with me. But it's interesting how that works. I, because throughout time, after I left that state, he continued to attend church. Over time, he was baptized. He's still connected to that church, which is good. But I struggle to think that what I did was actually presenting him with the gospel, with evangelism. Because most of what I did was baby steps. Because when I met him, he had a disdain for the church. Because all the Christians he met were hypocrites. All the friends he had in the church he was growing up with were drunks. His taste for Christianity had been soured by unclean people. But me coming into his life didn't make him holy. It didn't make him a Christian. And I've been removed enough that I don't know the entirety of his relationship with that church, but I know he does have regular attendance, which I appreciate. I know he's been baptized, which I, I celebrate that and I love that. But the only way that friend becomes a Christian, the only way that friend becomes holy is not through his church attendance. It's through looking upon the once crucified, now risen, now reigning Christ, and declaring Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and God. We must remember that our default state as human beings is unclean 
is sinful, is spiritually dead. Outside of Christ, you are spiritually dead. And Haggai's second question is an indictment against the people because they have failed to be obedient to what God had commanded them when they had returned to the land to rebuild the temple. But even before that, they had been unfaithful to what God had commanded them. As we looked at in Sunday school this morning, is the book of Ecclesiastes is at the very end, what is the whole duty of man but to fear God and to obey his commands? And we see that that is seemingly a reference to Deuteronomy 7. And yet, as our default state as people, we don't fear God. Outside of Christ, we hate God. And we don't keep his commands because we seek to glorify ourselves rather than him. And yet, in Ephesians 2, Paul speaks of everyone who is outside of Christ in the same way. He speaks of people who are outside of Christ being dead. And the most wonderful two words in the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy, made you alive in Christ. How we become holy is our connection to Christ. Christ makes his disciples holy. He's the only one who can do that. But he doesn't do that merely through washing of feet. He does it through his work of redemption on the cross and his making his saints alive. As I pointed to two weeks ago when looking at verse 9, Jesus gave us and the people who heard the message in Haggai the greatest blessing when he gave up his life on the cross, taking our sin upon himself and rising from the dead, conquering death and defeating sin. We don't deserve this blessing. We can't earn this blessing. But when the Lord says on this day or from this day on, I will bless you, he's speaking of giving them physical providence of their food, but there is a greater blessing to be had when they're reminded of and when they see the latter glory of this house should be greater than the former. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. <coughs> the greatest blessing that is to be found is to be found at the feet of Jesus. To be found as we see and find forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. And in just a moment, we're going to sing the song, Hallelujah, What a Savior. And what a remarkable statement that is. And that song fills out the wonderful declaration of the gospel. The man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to be clean. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray.